Hi, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to Books and Beyond with Bound, where we talk to some of the finest writers in India to find out what makes them tick. So, in this episode, we spoke to an author who's very special. I actually have edited her book. She is a debut Pakistani author. Her book is called Skyfall, and it's this gripping love story about a Pakistani tour guide, Rania, who falls in love with an Indian filmmaker, Asher. and it's set in the bylanes of Hira Mandi which is Lahore's red light district so i was really really excited to interview saba because i felt like i already knew her when i was editing the book yeah, and for me uh, what i loved about the episode tara is you know how she wanted to actually preserve the pakistani indian friendships and the love between these two countries you know because she wanted to escape the current political dystopia and i also liked how her father was such a big influence on her writing Yeah I know and I, it was really heartwarming to read because even for me my dad is my one of my biggest supporters and funnily enough I was so curious because the dad character in this book is a villain so the exact opposite of all three of our fathers and actually she shared it, that it, that was her motivation because she wanted to create that kind of contrast and I found that just so interesting I mean so fascinating you know Yeah it is and I think you know uh, that made it way more easier because I was like how could she think of such a villainous character how could she think of Sherji but now it makes more sense just do the opposite <laughs> but speaking of <laughs> yeah. speaking of new stories uh, we at Bound are always on the lookout to help debut authors reach publishers so if you are an author who wants help pitching your book to publishers that is something that we can help you with So get in touch with us. Send us your manuscript and your bio at connect at boundindia dot com or DM us at Bound India to find out more about how we can work together to get your story out there. And here's a shout out to Surbhi Geete for being our biggest fan and getting all the answers right on the fun quiz that we did on Instagram last week. She's at khushi underscore reads on Instagram. And for now, let's dive in the episode. So welcome to Books and Beyond Sabha. Very 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 excited to have you here today. Thank you so much Tara and Michelle. It's such a privilege. I've heard tons about the podcast and that it's really right up there in the ranking of podcasts especially on literature. So I'm really excited. Thank you. <laughs> That's so Thank sweet. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> and we loved your book Sabha. Oh my god. I can I had actually copy edited your book for Bloomsbury. um and it was one of my favorite editing projects oh uh, my so god freelance editor yeah that <laughs> is so special editor. and i come across a lot of books and when i come across a book like this you know it just it just makes my week or weeks uh because it's just so fun working becomes so fun um i was totally immersed in the story and you know because i had spent i spent so much time on it i, I got to know it quite intimately so I'm very very excited because you know now I get a chance to also you know get to know the book in another way through you um so this is this is amazing Oh no that's <laughs> so special and I have like the broadest smile on my face Yeah so you know when we were doing research about uh, about this interview and about you uh we found something very interesting you mentioned that your book is a tiny attempt to fulfill a large dream that your father always carried um and this is something that 
you know, uh, I didn't, I certainly didn't know when I was editing the book. So could you tell us a little bit about this? Yes, of course. Well, first of all, thank you for actually starting with that. You know, it's interesting, like we, we obviously in all these podcasts and things, one talks about things related to the content of the book or the process. And it's just rare for someone to be mindful of, of, you know, asking about the dedication. And because Abu is so, um, such an intricate part of this experience, I'm very touched that, you know, you noticed that. And I would, I would love to speak about that. So I guess just by way of, you know, a backstory, I grew up in, in Karachi in Pakistan. And I sort of grew up in a home that was filled with I'd like to say, you know, handwritten letters and books and ghazals and just the freedom to dream, you know, and a lot of that came from my father, who was a professor of English literature. And so in a sense, storytelling was really indispensable. It was like a staple at at our home, whether that was at the dining table, whether that was, you know, on a long drive, wherever. And so it was it was the entire spectrum, you know, right from Urdu Shairi to Shakespeare, Abu kind of threw it all into the mix. Which was, which was really interesting. And so most of my Saturdays growing up were spent with him and my siblings and our mother at the British Council Library. And I have this really vivid impression of reading kind of Charlotte's Web with him at a very young age and, you know, then him recommending Little Women and that sort of thing. And those memories have really stuck. So I guess it's important to mention this because it was a sort of home where we would trade a lot. At least my father would have materially traded a lot just for an intellectually or a spiritually uplifting experience. So I guess, you know, kind of that links very closely to Skyfall because Abu would talk to us about three books that he had scripted in his head and that he wanted to publish. And somewhere through those years growing up, I think my ambitions became really intimately bound with his. And hence, Skyfall is a modest attempt, like you said, to fulfill a large dream that he carried and you know that poem in the dedication by A.E. Hausman, that's something that he would recite to us a lot. And in particular, that line where it says, um, where's the lost young man? And I think that to me is both, um, it's poetic, but it's tragic because when, when Bloomsbury published Skyfall, his loss just kind of loomed so much larger. And you know, that void felt so much more gaping. So I think it's been a very bittersweet experience and he's really indispensable to this journey. That's so lovely and that sounds like such a special father-daughter relationship. Thank you so so much for sharing. Yeah, it just reminded, you know, me of my own relationship with my dad and, you know, uh, how he sort of helped me become a reader and, you know, he used to make me play all these spelling games when I was a kid. Um, So that that just reminded me of that. No, definitely. Yeah, and you know, uh, very strangely, uh, Sabah, you know, your mention of, you know, the British Council actually took me back to my days in Bangalore when I used to wait for the time I could actually visit the British Council and go through the books. I mean, I can only imagine how magical your childhood must have been and, you know, what an influence your father would have been on your writing. Um, Oh, no, thank you so much. (laughs) That's so true. I think magic is really, Michelle, the word that comes to my mind. So I couldn't put it any better, really. Yeah, and you know, talking about magic, about one thing that we loved about Skyfall is the love story. I mean, we haven't seen <laughs> a better love story. I mean, you know, I mean, it's your book covers so many things, but at its heart, it's a love story between an Indian boy and a Pakistani girl against all odds, right? Yes. So can you tell us about, you know, how these two characters, Rania and Asher, you know, how did they come to you? I I completely agree with you, Michelle. I read Skyfall as a kind of 
the soul of a Sufi love song. I really do, you know, and kind of amidst the chaos and the vitriol of both these countries, one of the biggest dangers that I think we face at the moment is this bleakness about the future. And I think it's almost become politically imperative to try and seek out optimism and hope. So starting right from the title itself, I think that is, and you summed it up so well right now, Michelle, because a lot of people kind of joke and poke fun at me for saying, oh, is it the Bond reincarnation of the film? And I'm like, no, the title, although a lot of people don't know this, Skyfall actually means the last attempt that you make against a group of people when you're outnumbered. And I think that is the spirit that really crystallizes Rania and Asher's love story kind of an invitation for readers to imagine a world that is less divided, a world where coexistence can kind of be the currency and where, you know, the color of my skin or my faith doesn't have to determine who I fall in love with. Asher in particular, you know, him being Indian, him being the Indian filmmaker, he may not have as many pages as Rania does in the story, but he offers this Sort of what I'd like to say is the less visible but definitely indispensable gravity that is catalyzing the whole story. And I remember kind of anecdotally, it was in a conversation with Babsi Sidva several years ago, where we spoke about the possibility of telling an India-Pakistan love story, but telling it in a way that doesn't pander to the tropes, you know, so that almost allows us to imagine love in a time of very, you know, where, where hate is spiraling so quickly and to sort of imagine, help readers imagine a world where I don't need to bring you proof in a handbasket of my love for someone just because he's Indian or he's Hindu or whatever that might be. And again, you know, this for me comes from a very, very personal mood board because I've grown up, like I told you, in Pakistan. And this possibility of a border breakout, it was like a tinderbox waiting to explode. When are we going to get into some kind of, you know, um, war with India? And as I wrote Skyfall, we had the aftermath of Kashmir. We had the entire love jihad kind of conversation spiraling to an astronomically dangerous point, you know, kind of publicly on the streets and squares. And I literally experienced firsthand blossoming friendships kind of spilling over into very indiscriminate animosity. And that was, that was really tragic. And, and to me, it kind of fueled a bit of soul searching. It forced me to ask, how is it that seven decades on, not only have we made no progress from being at each other's throats, we're actually sliding downwards with menacing volition. That is scary to me as someone who comes from one side of the border. So I think that is where that love story emerged from. And Rania and Asher are vociferously pushing back against this. That was really well described, uh, Sabah, and we couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, and that's also one of the reasons that we loved uh, this love story so much because, you know, there is that pushback. But coming to Rania's character, um, you know, she is a tour guide and I found that profession to be quite refreshing, uh, you know. So it would be really uh, interesting if you could speak a little bit more about how that character came to you. You know, why did you choose that profession for her? And, you know, how does she break the stereotypes that, you know, we may see around us? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, part of Rania's character, you know, it's, it's again deeply personal because I think it's very intimately bound with a lot of the battles that I found myself wrought in as a girl growing up in Pakistan. You know, you're navigating and searching for your identity 
And you're doing this amidst a culture of silencing that has been dangerously normalized. You know, where talk about female desire and female sexuality is so highly stigmatized. I mean, in even in privileged homes in Pakistan, as I grew up, talk of women's desire and bodies was a kind of ruin. It was always this site for contestation. And there would always be this fear of, what is a chokidar going to say if you're seen somewhere with a boy? You know, those sorts of, I'm talking about like educated, so-called elite circles, but that strain kind of ran through, who's going to marry such a girl? So always kind of keep your sexual capital very, and your sexual history very limited in order to have the rishta prospects heightened. I was interested to explore the possibility of a girl from the red light area transgressing. And, and I think, again, this question of what price do you pay as a girl, as a woman, as an other, as we're often, often cast, you know, for having a beautiful brown mind, for wanting to unearth your song and, and kind of for putting questions that might be uncomfortable so that's why you might have noticed a lot of times Rania is referred to as a troublemaker with a capital T. So, so the question kind of motivating me was, what price do you pay for being that troublemaker? And at the same time, I wanted her to be all those things whilst being vulnerable, whilst being imperfect, just being brutally real. You know, I wanted to explore these shades of gray because much too often we try and force fit women from places like India and Pakistan into these black and white boxes. And so I kind of wanted to strip that open. And I wanted to, I suppose I wanted to say that Rania can be empowered. She can be compelling without having to scream or hold a placard from a rooftop or without burning off her bra to say, oh, I'm an extremely powerful woman. And most importantly, this is really close to my heart, but I wanted Rania to be someone who didn't need to be rescued. I just wanted to say Pakistani women genuinely don't need saving. And I think that clarification kind of ricochets on almost every page of Skyfall. In Lahore, much like everywhere else in Pakistan, and maybe both of you can relate to this from India as well, women are constantly battling this male gaze, especially when we're out in the public space. You know, it could be in the form of somebody pinching you, someone staring at you, someone catcalling you. And that kind of male gaze never leaves you, irrespective of how much privilege you might have. And what I found so problematic about it, and I continue to find problematic about it, is that it's something that's often intangible. It's hard to call out in a public space that somebody harassed you. So I think what, what making her a tour guide made possible was that she could, um, I think it signaled that, 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 you know, there is a buoyancy and a resilience within her to take the road less traveled. You know, she could have done anything else, but She's one of those people who wants to carve out space in public arenas, fight those daily battles. It's so interesting that you said that, uh, you know, how you wanted Rania to sort of be able to also traverse Lahore and show a woman, you know, uh, moving around the city. Um, and when I read, when I was editing the book, I, I really, really loved all the descriptions. And it reminded me of another author that we've interviewed, Amrita Mahale, yeah. whose, uh, whose, protagonist, whose female protagonist is a civics journalist. So her job is literally to go, you know, all around the city and we see her walking around and all of those. So there really is a sense, I feel, of uh, women authors today giving their protagonists that sense of agency, um, you know, and pushing back in a way that maybe, you know, isn't available as much to us in real life 
um so i i really really did like that part of it yeah and i'm so glad tara that you used the word agency because that's exactly like that's front and center for me i think more so because when i think of a place like hira mandi which is the red light district the neighborhood where the book is housed for a large part then i think for me the question becomes how can a woman from there reclaim agency because it's a context where we imagine there is none so you know i wanted to show her as someone who's not dumbed down yeah absolutely and honestly i did not know that this was a red light district of lahore you know and and recently i found out that you know there's a movie going a bollywood movie that's going to be shot there by sanjay leela pansali and wow. you know this so you know we were curious why hira mandi in the first place and how did you go about researching it since you know you're actually based in the uae right now i think for me and and i don't know if you know this michelle and tara but i a large part of my in fact all of my undergraduate years were spent in lahore you know and and so i spent a lot of time in these streets and these alleys of neighbor uh, of of hira mandi you know in this precise sort of neighborhood and so i have really visceral vivid impressions of those rooftops where rania and asher were you know off each and every gully and i think that formed a very important sort of empirical basis for the sense of place and then also for the sense of character because i feel like there's always this temptation when you're writing about south asia to start exoticizing to write about it in this really voyeuristic way to say oh i'm going to show you the old city the touristy parts of lahore how do i really open up windows into parts of lahore that are not sanitized that are completely rough around the edges but yet there are very real to that city so i think it was those days and nights that i spent you know in in that city and again like small things like the neon lights shining from internet cafes at night you know those things are just those impressions stuck with me so much but then the other part of your question which is about these women about these dancing girls now i went in there with this i have to admit and quite i'm quite ashamed of admitting this but i have to be honest and say when i went in there when i was living in lahore there was of course this stereotypical sense of what agency could they have like what dreams and aspirations could they have like you know that they're doing one thing and it meant so much unlearning taking place at that time because i i i guess what i'm trying to say is i had a very immersive experience i spent a lot of days and nights speaking to these women kind of entering their inner lives this space of angst and wonder and seeing you know and discovering that there are dreams and aspirations that reside in this neighborhood that some of them in fact are savvy entrepreneurs so i'm not taking away the fact that they're oppressed and there's brutality but i also wanted to show you know impressions that are more nuanced that there's more complexity to them um than just saying oh these are prostitutes that sell their body and and that i think has made its way into the novel and it's really helped me to not milk a story of a red light area just to play to a western gallery or to not dumb down rania for instance yeah i mean you've uh, you know rania's mother operates in the red light district and we see that you know very up close and her sister ojala uh, is also now being forced uh, you know uh, to go into that world by rania's father so you know she's very much part of that ecosystem um and i really liked how you know nuanced it was and how really it went you know deep into these women's lives um you know as you said without uh you know sensationalizing anything 
it reminded me of uh, another book um, it's a non fiction book it's one of my favorite books uh, sonia falero's beautiful thing yes 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 i love yeah. her work yeah yeah so it, because she in that book basically she chronicles the lives of bar dancers yes um and specifically through you know the life of one bar dancer and we really you know get a full picture view of how much agency and how much how independent uh, you know these women can be but you know speaking of rania's mom and her sister and all the hardships they have to go to go through uh, you know most of these hardships are because of the father yes because he was quite unforgettable you know he uses the women in his life for his own selfish needs um and he was quite villainous so you know even some parts of it were disturbing to read so what was it like for you to write such a character to create such a character i'm just very curious to know you know i see shirji as one of the few characters in the book who is loud and preachy and i think that was deliberate because i wanted him to work almost like a foil to the other sort of quietly compelling forceful characters again this goes back to this idea that you don't always have to be loud to to make a difference so that's what the other people were doing but you know it's interesting you asked me this because shirji's character to me is deeply personal but in a very twisted way and i'll tell you why i've grown up as i was explaining to you earlier with a very different father figure i mean abu was someone you know he's now passed away but he was such a mellow man that in the 25 years of my life that he was alive he never once raised his voice at us and he opened us up to this world of parenting that was based on respect rather than fear so if i ever came back from a party or an event at a particular time you know that wasn't because there was a set curfew in my house it was just because i wanted to respect the values that i thought my father was inculcating in us which shirji i think i was really interested in creating the antithesis of my own father you know to say what might happen when you remove this person who we we tend to see as an unconditional ally from someone's life from a girl's life in particular you know these are relationships that we tend to take for granted and i guess the big thing behind it was to say how disillusioning is it to be let down by the first man that you know and that you love and i think there's a part in the book where rani actually says that that i only loved him until i start i only knew how to love him until i started hating him and so i think i think again that's that's a big part of where his character stems from but thematically i think it was also a plot device for me to push back against organized religion which really bothers me and which is so relevant to pakistan's climate so i guess i guess it really allowed me to unpack a lot of that hypocrisy that goes into organized religion and and say that there are people like him who are peddling the flesh trade of hira mandi at night and in the day they are sermonizing to you about jihad and about purity and about the virgins in heaven and i think it was just time that we started normalizing speaking up about these people no matter how nervous that obviously you know makes a lot of factions in a place like pakistan and you know it was it was really difficult to develop it was really messy it was gut wrenching i think scenes where he meets out this violence against women i found those particularly difficult to write but then also strangely cathartic because these are things that we're only going to talk about in whispers in a in a country like pakistan and eventually it allowed me it allowed those floodgates to burst and say 
I could just, it, it felt very freeing to be able to write and speak about these things. Um, it's just that I think as a storyteller, you have to be very, very tactful, right? Because you don't want to be telling people how to feel when they read a particular chapter with him being violent or whatever that might be. There's so much you're trying to say this. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to show these little vignettes, almost like a film reel, and let people feel what they want with it. So I think that was something I had to be careful with. But otherwise, yeah, his character was definitely very interesting to develop. Yeah, and uh, it was so beautiful the way you've mentioned the contrast between uh, your father and Sherji. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's something I wanted to mention because, you know, I usually, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by antagonists. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I agree with you. I mean, there's a curiosity about understanding a backstory that feels so different from our own, right? Like, I mean, exactly. with some of the other characters you can relate, but with this, it's like, and you know, Michelle, what's interesting is that I would like to say it's not inauthentic because there are several Shejis lurking in the corridors in a country like Pakistan. And they're so normalized, like people wouldn't bat an eyelid, to, to be honest. And yet, you know, when you read something like that, it's like, oh my gosh, is he real? Yeah, I know. It's, it's really shocking, actually. Um, you know, and I really do hope that, uh, you know, as the days pass by, we will have less Shejis in the world. I think that's the only hope that, you know, yes. we have uh, yeah, as we as we get to know about their stories, you know. And it's, it's quite interesting that you've mentioned about film, Sabah. So we do know that uh, you're a filmmaker and, you know, your thought process also works in the form of films. And, you know, I had seen your short film, which focuses on street kids who play football. And you, and you give them a very personal touch, which is what I found really amazing. So I would like to know a little bit about your process. How do you even, you know, go about, um, you know, thinking about films or stories in general? Yeah, 300%, Michelle. Absolutely. I mean, I would like to say that I gravitate towards using this power of storytelling to talk about those who are at the margins, like you're saying, but without talking for them or without claiming representation in some kind of patronizing way, you know. I just, I guess I get drawn to stories of people who aren't spoken enough, who just, I'd like to say, don't get a seat at the table, you know. So in some ways, it allows you to level the playing field of who has a voice. And in that sense, I find inequality and injustice quite closely tied into my work. And I think it all kind of gets subsumed under this label of storyteller, right? And I think the, the street children example you gave is so pertinent because what, that, what shooting on location, what filming allows me to do is, in some ways, it's conversant with my writing because it allows a form of travel. And when I say travel, I don't mean I need to get onto a plane and go somewhere. But it has this power to transport you and to open up windows into a world that you completely may not have access to. For me, filming with the street child footballers, again, similar to the Hiramandi experience, it's in the same city where I was born and brought up, which is Karachi. And yet it felt, it was so eye-opening. I was like, oh my God, these feel these two worlds feel like a complete juxtaposition, the world where these street child footballers live and the world where I've grown up in Karachi. And so I think, I think what that allows you to do is it really broadens your horizons. And I think it, it, it really opens up a window into a new world. Now, the question kind of becomes, how does that link to writing then? How does it add to that? And I think for me, it again allows a certain empirical ground for your characters and for your stories. It's interesting because it could be little things like an anecdote here, a stretched silence there while you were filming. 
I don't know, maybe just even the pathos in someone's eyes as you were shooting. And that becomes kind of raw data that I can then lean on to flesh out the world of the book. And I think I have done that with Skyfall. So like, I'm, I'm currently directing a series on Me Too in South Asia. And that's definitely informed the world of Skyfall in, in lots wow. of ways. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. And so I feel like, again, I may not have had firsthand experience of this, or I may have, but it's when I listen to other people's stories of violence and harassment that I can say, all right, like, I mean, maybe that is how Rania or Jahani Rumi or Rajala would have felt. So I think that definitely makes a difference. The other thing that filmmaking does for me is that it also gives you visual crutches when you're writing. Because again, writing can be so nebulous, it can be so mysterious. But I have some sense of how a film reel rolls or what someone's expression of joy or sorrow might be on a camera. And I think whilst writing Skyfall, there were a million moments where I stopped and said, what would this look like as a film? How would this chapter look like frame to frame? You know, and I think, so whether it was Hira Mandi, whether it was a solitary night I was describing in Manhattan, I think it just becomes a very effective technique to, to offer visuals. So I think that detailing gets very captured through a little bit of that filmmaking experience. I love, uh, I love how, you know, your filmmaking ties into writing. Um, and I was recently reading this book, uh, which came to my mind when you were talking about all this. It's called Range by David Epstein. Um, and it basically, you know, it showcases how research is actually showing that the more interdisciplinary you get, the more sort of, you know, the more you sort of understand fields that are related to your own, um, you know, but are different the more you can actually better your craft because then, you know, you take things from other things and then you sort of make it better. You know, I also heard that, you know, um, companies, they look to hire uh, people from interdisciplinary backgrounds because apparently uh, they have creative problem-solving skills because if somebody has, right. uh, you know, exposure to only one field, they'll only know that way, right? They won't really think yeah. out of the box. I completely yeah. agree yeah. with you. I, I'm, I'm so with you on that. You know, I work at NYU and we're so cognizant here even of, just kind of this more multidisciplinary, like breaking down silos between, you know, I, I guess because typically we have this sense of parking each discipline in its own little vertical. And I think for me, it was also because I've learned both things, whether it's writing or filmmaking kind of on the job. I'm not trained in either uh, through a degree or anything like that. So it's, it's so interesting because it's like an experiment and you draw from each and then I, exactly to the point both of you are making, I love the fact that they're conversant with each other. And for me, it kind of all unites under the only label that I embrace, which is that of storyteller. So it's, it's interesting. Same. That's the label that we embrace too. Because everybody's like, oh, what are you? You guys are podcasters and editors and writers. So we're yeah. like, no, we are storytellers. I love that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't get better than that. And it's also your debut book. So we're really interested in, you know, uh, what was it like publishing the book in India? And we also wanted to know, you know, what is the scene with the Pakistani publishing industry? Because I know, you know, there are a lot of uh, Pakistani authors writing in India. Yeah. Um, and what kind of cross-pollination exists? I guess I should admit that I started out very clueless. And, and the other reason why I think it's important for me to underscore that to anyone who's listening in is that, you know, there's this tendency to see a finished product like a book or a film somewhere on a shelf or, you know, on a portal and it feels like it's so glamorous. It feels like it's a fully figured out process. And that's how it must have been from the get go. And it can feel a little bit intimidating. So I guess I'm just very much about 
pulling listeners into those crevices of fear and insecurity that at least as far as I'm concerned, were constant companions with me on this creative journey. And I think they will continue to be. Um, I guess personally, I don't have access to an inner circle of any kind or, you know, any any nepotistic access to the industry or even an MFA degree or anything like that. I guess what I had was um, I just had this raging kind of hunger to unearth my song, as I call it, you know. And as powerful a tagline as that sounds, you kind of end up realizing it's not practically enough to get the book across the finish line. So I guess for me, the road to publishing has been really experimental. It's felt a bit like a laboratory, just tossing everything into the mix and then staying quietly with it for a bit and just desperately hoping it kind of metamorphosizes into something. And so that part is solitary. That's more maybe the writing part. But talking about getting to actual publishing, for me, again, this was very, very trial and error based. I researched the agent universe. I made a conscious decision to say, I want to start out the publishing journey with pitching to agents in India. And then I, so I researched the agent universe quite well and realized, okay, this seems to be a good fit. Um, and, and so I didn't want to start pitching kind of at, at a mass level. And I have to say that I think I was really, really pleasantly surprised. And I think I say that because when I first pitched Skyfall to, to, to who is now my current agent, he literally replied within a matter of minutes to request for the complete manuscript. And, you know, he's kind of championed it at every step. Kanishka Tara, obviously, you know, I think, um, and, and you know, you know him. And subsequently then for, for Bloomsbury to take a shot on a debut author, who is not a social media celebrity, and, and especially in the aftermath of the book ban between the two countries. I think that for me was really surprising in a beautiful way. And it kind of showed me how art can still speak beyond border politics. And believe me when I say this, Bloomsbury minimally fiddled with the story stu structure. There was no major coercion to say, oh, let's try and sensationalize the India-Pakistan narrative. But I think I really respect that kind of creative independence. And so contrary to what we're made to believe about the probability of first-time publishing being dangerously low, I do believe that there is an appetite. But coming to your question about publishing in Pakistan, I hate to be the bearer of this kind of press for Pakistan, but um, it's just, it's quite dismal. So be that agents, be that publishing houses, be that quality of paper, they're either scarce or they're non-existent. And I found this to be very different from my experience in India, especially after launching Skyfall, because I feel the menu options for writers and readers, both in Pakistan, are much less diversified. So obviously, that's going to impact my own creative freedom, because who's publishing me, who's reading my work, it, it impacts the stories I can tell. So I guess in that sense, Pakistan has a really long way to go. And I think something that I found really interesting after the release of Skyfall was that, you know, Bloomsbury was setting up these workshops and talks for me. And one of the workshops that I did with, I think it was Mitibai College in Mumbai, it was such an eye-opener for me because on that workshop, there were women from all parts of India with such an appetite to learn, to write, to, you know, improve. And for me, that was a big difference from the experience I've had in Pakistan. Because in Pakistan, reading to a large extent or just this engagement with creativity is still an elite insular kind of world. I loved that there were people reading Skyfall across a range of 
categories and it wasn't just st- something stuck in a post-colonial class somewhere in an echo chamber. I was really heartened to see that. Um, and that actually took me back to my time in Bahrain, uh, Sabah. You know, if we talk about publishing and, you know, the hurdles that, you know, it faces in certain countries, I, you know, it reminded me of the censorship that literature has in, in certain places and, uh, you know, not not only with, with literature. I remember, you know, uh, being driven around uh, with my father and, you know, there was this, you know, uh, the radio jockeys speaking to each other and they're actually talking about lust stories, which are on, you know, which are on Netflix, but they had to say love stories very much because of the censorship. And I was oh really goodness. surprised. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so many words, you know, so actually that actually took me back um, to that time. Um, you know, that story about what you said about the, uh, you know, students, the women in Mithibai College, I think that's, that, that is heartening to hear because uh, you know, that's something that we also at Bound are trying to do is trying to build up that uh, ecosystem. And I do hope that we see more voices from Pakistan because honestly speaking, some of my favorite authors ever uh, are Pakistani. So for example, you know, uh, last year I read Daniel Moinuddin's In Other Rooms, Other Wonders. Uh, fabulous. I just fell in love immediately. You know, that was just Wow. Um, you know, it's a collection of short stories. Uh, yes, uh, it is absolutely stunning. Class boundaries. Yeah, and then Mohsin Hamid, I mean, I remember, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, reading all of his books and absolutely, you know, loving them. Babsi Sidwa. I mean, there are just, there's such fabulous writing uh, coming. So when I saw that, I also read the acknowledgements and we saw that you thanked most in So we got very, very excited, obviously, you know, because, um, you know, he's, as I mentioned, one of my favorite writers. And Michelle also actually uses one of his books in her classes. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And, and, yeah. and especially because, you know, like the way he writes in second person, I haven't seen any other writer do that. That's sure. why I'm a huge fan for that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Can, you, can you share an anecdote about, you know, your literary relationship with him? Of course. Well, you know, I all I can first of all say is that I I completely echo what both of you are saying. And, you know, a lot of times people will ask about, oh, you know, like which Pakistani writers do you think um, not represent the country, but who do you find most compelling, right? And I think the reason why in contemporary times I always name Mohsin Hamid is that, you know, it's everything you guys said about his work just being powerful, you know, just stylistically having that kind of prowess. But then personally, you know, for me, I think he's been somebody who has been an ally. And I think that's so rare because publishing, I'm not sure how it works in India, but I imagine across the world, it can seem like a very um, a very tight-lipped, a very insular kind of cliquish community. Mohsin Hamid proved to be somebody who I could write an email to at any time of day and night and say, just reach out to him and say, you know, this is on my mind about the book or about the process or whatever can I pick your brains about this? Like, I remember asking him, what do you think about publishing in India? How how do you feel about, you know, me starting out there? I remember I interviewed him for Visafri last year. Um, You know, the interview just came out this February and it was on Exit West. And in that interview, he said to me, I was saying all this to him in the end, just to acknowledge and appreciate. And he said, you know, Sabah, we're all in this together. And I found that phrase so powerful that for someone like him, yeah, (laughs) he doesn't need me. I admire him for his work, 
But, you know, maybe more than that, I admire him for the sort of human being he is. And I, I, I don't just say that because it's a good thing to say. But genuinely, when Skyfall was released, I commissioned a piece of art specifically for him. And that was, it was actually the cover, one of the covers of Moth Smoke. And I got an artist in Pakistan to, to paint that, to, to, you know, to make it. And oh, wow. yeah, and oh, I, so cool. <laughs> yeah, because I just felt like a, like I, I wanted to express my gratitude, but B, you know, when he thanked me for it, my response to him was that it's the tiniest expression of my gratitude for someone I deeply admire, both as a storyteller and a human being, because I think he's touched my journey in really unimaginable ways. So, uh, so I'm so glad you asked me that. I just, I mean, he's such a role model. No, really. I mean, you know, and this is something that, you know, I have also experienced about. So I could, you know, totally relate. And sometimes I just feel like, oh, my God, I have to thank my stars for coming across people who are so humble, you know, because at the end of the day, see, we, you know, we are, uh, you know, new writers. And, and when we find accomplished writers who, you know, give us the time of day and who just say, you know, we are all in this, like, that's such a beautiful feeling, right? So, you know, that reminded me of Ria Mukherjee. Uh, you know, she's such an accomplished writer. She's done her MFA, all of that. Uh, but, you know, like, I mean, she's been a constant support to me. Like, she's wow. never, ever made me feel like, okay, Michelle, like, you know, you're there and I'm here. You see, right. I think that is the, right. yeah, that's the best feeling. And, you know, that support, like, you know, we are there for you. We are rooting for you. The other person who's very much like that was Bab, has been Babsi Sidwa. I mean, I can't even begin to describe it to you. And again, she's someone who's paved the literary scene as far as the subcontinent goes, you know, from back in the day so approachable. She was the first person to have blurbed Skyfall for me. And I just, I was like, can people actually be this generous and this giving? And I think for me, there's something to really take away as I begin my own literary journey. You know, coming back to your book, um, you know, we spoke about the characters, you know, we spoke about, you know, how you dealt with such, you know, difficult issues, but you've done it so well. But, you know, we all know that the most important part of a story is the language, right? How do you tell the story in the first place? And we read something really interesting that, you know, you actually made your mother read the book and you felt that if your mother didn't get it, that's when you should actually rewrite it. We found that <laughs> really so inspiring. So, so how did that come about, Saba? And, and, you know, what did you do to make the story accessible? And why did you think that that's the most important thing? Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you picked up on that, Michelle, because it's true. I think my rule of thumb as a storyteller and across medium, so even if I'm writing an op-ed, whether it was with the film, whatever whatever format it might be taking, my rule of thumb for several years now has been, if Ammi doesn't get it, then there's something that needs revisiting and I should just do that without, I think it's just my first point of check. Um, and then there's no shame or there's, I don't think I should be embarrassed of saying, or I, I shouldn't resist going back and rewriting that. I think for me, it was, it's just for a long time, it's been important that when, as a storyteller, you know, you have this power to, to touch people's lives, to kind of unlock their minds. And again, I represent a sliver of my country's society. I'm literally a tiny percent. And we often tend to forget this. So I guess over time, what I've really, what I'm, and this is a journey I'm on, I'm not saying I've completely mastered it. I've really tried to work on making my, my writing and my language and my storytelling more open and more democratic, just so that if someone wants to read it on a beach, they can read it on a beach. If somebody wants to teach it in a university, they can do that. 
if someone it it just should not matter what class or geography or ethnicity or race you belong to and i think that's important because um it gives you access so if the point is that this is your song and you're unearthing it how do you really want to reach beyond that sliver of society beyond that again that very elite class of people you don't want you don't want it just rotating amongst that are those ivory towers so i think i've been very conscious of that and and again because we're writing in english already i'm shutting off a large part of you know say the subcontinent for myself um it's also because again what's motivating you to tell the story is it that you want to gun for all the prizes and have that kind of a claim which is absolutely fine as well or is it to say i actually want to reach out to people and and again like to get them to think about issues that we otherwise maybe wouldn't be speaking about i think for me that was really the big the big motivation and i'll share a small story really quickly with you the other day at iftar somebody had come over and they asked me so what has been the most heartening feedback that you've got for skyfall not praise necessarily but just feedback and it got me thinking and i think this ties into the question you've asked because i realized for me one of the most one of the the the, the most high the biggest high points in the aftermath of skyfall's release was that a girl reached out to me on instagram she does these book tours and things and she said to me she's from pakistan and she's from a part of pakistan which i would again i don't want to sound i don't say this with any condescension i'm just being real she's not from like karachi lahore islamabad you know like these main centers she's from a slightly more remote part of pakistan and she the obscure, says to me uh, places yeah the obscure places right where i would in my typical um high horse impression say oh who's going to read skyfall sitting there it's obviously just people sitting in these urban dwellings and i think the reason why that story hit home so much was that she reached out to me on instagram and she said to me that you know saba i'm on the i'm i'm sitting in a bus on the way back from college and i'm so glad that i'm wearing a mask because i've just reached the chapter where one of the characters dies i'm not saying it because it'll give it away but she's like and i'm just bawling my eyes out like i can't control my tears and i'm so glad i've got this mask on because the wow. whole bus would see and i think to me that tied into michelle's question on language because if i had tried to make this deliberately esoteric and kind of some kind of really obscure commentary which five people would understand i just i don't know if i would have got this reaction that's such an amazing story you know that's something that michelle and i always speak about uh you know accessibility right so it's so important also you know for books to be smart but accessible and that's exactly what your book was um and that's why it could reach you know across spheres yeah but so you know coming to uh we're speaking about books and you know michelle and i we always discuss the kind of books that we like to read and we do this thing called buddy reading so you know we obviously read together for this podcast and then we read other books together what what was it that you read while writing skyfall i'm very clear about books that have made their way into skyfall possibly more subliminally but i find that they they have an indispensable gravity they're timely and timeless for me i think um that has got to do with urdu prose and poetry that's come out of you know the subcontinent and i think the reason for it is that i've been exposed to it from a very young age as we were growing up my father used to say that 
you know, a, the sign of being truly educated is having command and fluency over both English and Urdu. And the reason why I'm quoting that is it's so funny because I was obviously going to this private British school in, in Karachi where if you spoke good Urdu, people actually looked down upon you. Like it was something to be embarrassed about, you know, and, and kind of speaking English with this mildly anglicized accent was the way to go. So I think my home environment worked as a foil to that. And I guess, I guess I was exposed to a lot of Urdu literature as I was young. Subsequently, that happened at, at, you know, at school and then a lot of it at university. And so I think for me, short stories by Isma Chuftai, like Chauthi Ka Jora or Apa by Mumtaz Mufti, that's one that has really stuck in my mind. You know, some of Manto's work. And so I think in terms of prose, those are really the impressions that have stuck. And, and, and also poetry. So I think, as you can probably see in Skyfall, Fez's work is just so, not just in the literal verses, but also just in the kind of worldview that I'm trying to, to, that I'm trying to convey. Fez's poetry has been, has, has, has been a real force to reckon with. And I guess the reason for that is that I found that there is a subtext, a kind of an emotional and cultural resonance that Urdu literature has or at least offers me, which I don't always find in, in English. And so for some reason, I suppose that always takes on greater power for me. It's like saying, I could, like just a small line, like, hum dekhenge, lazim hai ki hum bhi dekhenge. Something like that, like you've, you, it's two lines and you've captured the universe in it. You've captured an entire revolution in it, you know. And I just find that less can be so much more with Urdu literature um, and, I, and I suppose the closest analogy that I draw with these works that I've quoted to you, which is the sort of technique that I've tried to also use with writing Skyfall. Wow, I just, I loved uh, this thing about, you know, Urdu literature and all, because, you know, I've been fascinated with the language. And especially because, you know, it sounds a lot like um, Hindi, but the script is a lot like Arabic. So yeah. I've always been yeah fascinated about that. And I've thought, okay, you know, if I ever get a chance to learn another language, it would be Urdu. So I know that, you know, you're just out with your debut book, but, you know, we want to know whether there's any other book on your mind. What's next? Yeah, well, you know, Michelle, would you judge me if I said to you that sleep is next? <laughs> just like... <laughs> It's like you publish the book and you feel the work is done, right? When you've written those 300 pages. And I think one learning and one very exciting learning for me has been that that's kind of the tip of the iceberg, you know, and kind of hoping that the book rises above the clutter and the noise and all of that is the other part of it. And I think I'm not saying this because I have both of you right now, but it's conversations like these, which really unpack the gravitas to, to my writing or to anyone's work. I think those are the ones that are so heartening. And I think that's the part post-release that I've enjoyed the most. Um, in terms of what's next, at the moment, as I mentioned earlier, I'm in the post-production process of a visual storytelling project that I've directed. It's this mini four-part series on Me Too in South Asia, which is coming out later this year, fingers crossed. And it's kind of based on college student harassment survivors from India, Nepal, and Pakistan. So these are young girls who are now at college, but who've experienced some kind of, um, you know, physical violence or harass or sexual harassment, that sort of thing. And I think what motivated me to do it was this attempt to 
try and reclaim our voices and again do it in a language that can be understood locally we have this temptation in a country like pakistan to look at something like me too and immediately clone it like just quickly jump onto this bandwagon copy paste it and then say oh yeah where you know this is what's happening i guess with this mini series i wanted to change things around a bit and say how do i deliver me too in a language that feels like our own how do i communicate this how do i give the woman who works in my mother's house the tools to talk about me too she's not going to get it if i actually parachute it in from the west so i wanted to really get to the pulse of people who are survivors and you know it's been a really interesting sort of experience because on the one hand it's been a very difficult series to direct there are girls who have said we haven't even shared these stories with our mothers but on the other hand i feel it's such an important one right i want these girls to tell their stories very much in their own voice so that i think is really um the next project right now apart from that i'm in conversation with my agent you know about uh writing you know um and thinking about what comes next so it could possibly be a non fiction but i'm very very unsure at the moment and it's it's in very nascent stages oh that sounds absolutely fantastic uh, you know inclusive sensitively done um and i can't wait to watch it when it's out so please do let us know you know yeah please uh, share when it's out we'd love to uh, you know watch it and thanks so much for sharing it and uh yes now we move on to our last uh round which is the rapid fire round Ooh, okay. uh, films or books oh that is such a tough one ah uh, i would say books so abu dhabi or pakistan wow this is a tough rapid fire um pakistan okay favorite pakistani female writer i guess it would be isma chuftai okay yeah. so where do you write um nyu's library a large part or then just they have these open grass areas there because i just the nature connect is so important wow <laughs> okay uh favorite indian writer well i think there is um, i enjoyed the god of small things but i also really enjoyed an equal music i think it's by vikram seth yeah wow amazing yes okay so that actually brings us to the end of the episode sawa and this was one of our most fun episodes it was such a pleasure talking to you thank you for your insights and really it was very intellectually stimulating and a lot of fun so thanks thanks so much for your time thank you and thank you for being yes. immersed and invested in the world of skyfall that means so much to me it's very special This was a this was a really fascinating conversation and next week we have another amazing episode so Michelle recently so many bollywood legends have been in the news right uh Dilip yeah. Kumar's death which was a tragedy uh, he's such a legend and actually next week we are speaking to Yasir Usman so he is this bollywood biographer and he focuses on bollywood personalities like rekha gurudat rajesh khanna all of these people who have this larger than life hatke kind of life you know they're lonely he goes into their relationships it's full of sort of turmoil masala empathy um so yeah 
Yeah, and and actually, I want to speak to him because you know, it, uh, for example, his most latest book, right, which is about Guru Dutt and his life. It's like you know, traveling time. I want to go back to the golden era of of Hindi cinema. I have had lots of conversations with my father about you know movies of that time, but then nobody really bothers to go back and and archive all these stories. But he's done that with his latest book yeah. on Guru Dutt. Yeah, so you know, we're going to be finding out about Bollywood biographies and much more. and you know we are a story company and we love helping authors and writers tell their stories so like we mentioned earlier if you have a manuscript that you want to reach publishers we can help you please reach out to us at connect@boundindia.com or dm us at boundindia and let's see how we can work together to take your story out into the world yeah until, until next, next time, time. <laughs> bye